Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Gestalt University podcast. I am your host, Adam Butler, the Chief Investment Officer at Resolve Asset Management. Today's special guest is Andrew Miller, who I have labeled Renaissance Advisor because Andrew brings such a deep, thoughtful, mindful background and framework for thinking about virtually every dimension of the investment management and estate planning problem for private individuals. Andrew runs a very successful advisory practice out of Indianapolis and has very deep expertise in both the investment side, having had a background in analyzing private investments and hedge funds at an institution before migrating to the private wealth side of the business. And so he thought very deeply about how to create diversified, optimal portfolios for private individuals with all of the myriad objectives that private individuals bring to the table. And he also has spent an enormous amount of time and invested quite a lot of money and research in building great tools to better understand the retirement planning problem, as well as the estate problem in terms of, especially in terms of asset location. So how to optimize where each of the different uh, investments in the portfolio should go in order to minimize taxes while maintaining appropriate portfolio diversification, et cetera. So this is quite a wide ranging conversation. And Andrew brings unique insights to each of these critically important dimensions of the investment challenge for advisors and individuals. So without further ado, I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Andrew Miller. Please enjoy. So Andrew, welcome. Thanks so much. This has actually been too long getting you on the podcast. We've had some really good conversations, obviously on the phone, but also I think some of our best chats have been in advance of the March for the Fallen, where we always get together at Wes's house or the Alpha Architect headquarters in advance for the night before, a couple of nights before. And that always leads to great opportunities for conversation, but I'm glad to finally have you on. Well, thank you. It's a lot of fun being here. And I think, as I recall last time, I was kind of remiss that we weren't recording the conversation we had, I think perhaps before a video interview and then maybe on the way to Jeremy's podcast. That's exactly right. I think we were talking about cleaning covariance matrices or something like that, which those who are listening are going to discover that Andrew is a bit of a polymath. So he can speak very intelligently on a wide variety of topics. And I'm sure we won't have a chance to cover all of them today, but I do think it would be worthwhile for you to just give a brief introduction. And I'd love for you to share your journey to how you came to be the advisor you are. Sure. And I guess kind of a somewhat prototypical fashion was interested in the investing world, probably about 10 or 12 my father was a CPA, so was kind of familiar with a lot of financial concepts, and we started a private investment company. 
And in order to get that started, I was required to read Professor Dama Duran's book on investment valuation at 12. So kind of got a bit of a head start. And after high school, kind of shut that down and took out the cash in college, used that to buy the engagement ring for my wife. So probably the best return on investment I've ever had. After college, got interested in working professionally in the financial industry and worked for Delaware Investment Advisors and started on the commercial loan underwriting department, kind of quickly moved into helping co-manage what they viewed as, I think they called it the 10 basis point project or something like that. It was a, about a $2 billion carve out from the general account that was designed to provide uncorrelated sources of return. So it was a hedge fund portfolio, private equity portfolio, real estate, private equity portfolio, kind of anything designed to be uncorrelated to fixed income markets to help generate 10 to 20 extra basis points of return over and above the general account. And after about five years of doing that, my father started the financial planning firm in 2002. And in 2007, he was kind of looking to make a transition. And I was kind of looking to make a transition to sat down and chatted, kind of switched to the financial planning and investment advisor role that I've been in now for the last 13 years or so. So many people get introduced to investing through a family member or a close friend and that person gives them some things to read or research and that informs how they think about the investment problem for most of their lives. It sort of informs their investment personality. I've seen this time and again. I'm just wondering, do you feel like your experience reading Dammit Duran at that age and then working in that on the credit book and then in the kind of private equity hedge fund space. How do you think that informs how you think about the investment problem now? Probably you might find that I'm far more interested in maybe first principles theory in understanding how an asset might be priced and why it's priced that way. And I think with that comes the understanding of why should I earn a premium, some kind of return over and above the risk-free rate, and kind of how does that make sense in a portfolio? So that's kind of the theoretical side. And then just being involved in the credit markets and then maybe call it the alternative premium investment strategies, begin to realize that stocks and bonds are a little bit like chocolate and vanilla ice cream flavors. They're great. They're kind of the bedrock for just about anything else you want to do, but it's just two flavors. There's kind of the Baskin Robbins 31 flavors of different risk premia that you can invest in. And really to have something that is really a finished, polished product that is perhaps more robust to the unknowable future, you really do need to diversify and really begin to spread risk in a portfolio across lots of different premia because we simply don't know what's going to work in the future especially you know in five or 10 year segments of time. And we're trying to build portfolios that generate some kind of return, probably over a 20 or 30 year period of time in order to make somebody's financial plan work. And in order to do that, it takes some work to understand how different pieces fit together, how the premium work together, what kind of risk premium in total you're likely to get, what kind of risk level does that lead to, what kind of causes the portfolio as it's constructed to fail, what might cause it to go right. There's kind of a deep theoretical understanding needed when you're constructing portfolios. Yeah, agreed. I think you were one of the early adopters, certainly in the advisory arena of 
these alt premium strategies. So given that we've had now five or six or seven years of live trading in these strategies, and there's now been a variety of firms have launched these types of strategies and all of them approach alt premium from a slightly different direction. How would you say your views on these types of approaches have evolved? I don't think there's really a simple answer to that question. I still think they're there. Portfolio construction matters a lot and maybe even more so in the alternative premium space. Just as an example, the traditional value portfolio of going long the third of large stocks with the cheapest price to book and short the third with the most expensive price to book, and then replicating that again in the smaller cap space, it's kind of one definition of value. It relies a lot more on the small value premium than the large. So it makes it much harder to be investable. The value premium itself isn't market cap weighted then. It has a, a single rebalance date, either annually or monthly. So it's just one small sliver of what that premium might look like. If you were to say reconstitute it with price to earnings and rebalance on the 15th of the month instead of the end of the month, you can end up with a markedly different experience while still investing in the value premium. Yeah. So as an example, right? So pick the exact same characteristics for sort, rebalance on the 15th of the month, run that strategy, have a different account that rebalances on the last day of the month, run that in a separate account, and then look at the performance of these year over year. And what you could very easily observe and do observe historically is that in many years, the ones that rebounced on the 15th of the month had a positive year, the one rebounced on the, the end of the month had a negative year or vice versa. And this is totally due to random noise and is not at all accounted for in how most investors evaluate their allocations to products and strategies. Precisely. So I think the one takeaway there and something that I begin to appreciate more over time is just how important craftsmanship is, especially in the alternative premium. Market cap weighted stock exposure is a great way to get started and get your foot in the water of investing. But one added benefit is it's simple. There are rules and ironically enough, index investing is somewhat active. But there are some rules that govern what gets added to the portfolio, what gets taken out when they rebalance. Just somewhat recently, they announced that they were going to skip a rebalance. So that was an active decision. That's fine. But they're very simple decisions. There's not a lot of craftsmanship in running an index, at least a market cap weighted index. The more granular I think you get in the strategy, the more possible variance you have and the more important it is to take into consideration the craftsmanship in some ways, the diversification of it. I think one lesson learned over time is be way more humble than you think you need to be because there are lots of ways for things to fail out of sample. And it's really hard to get everything to work perfectly to kind of look like a genius. So I think one takeaway is diversify far more broadly in the alternative premium than you really think. It could be single manager, but it needs to be a single manager who in essence Tranches portfolios has lots of different definitions of the strategy in there, lots of different trading decisions that sometimes simple can be good, but sometimes simple can get you in trouble too. When you don't understand perhaps why a simple definition of a strategy didn't work as you intended. It goes the other way too, of course. I mean, if you've got a thoughtful strategy that does take care to tranche their rebalances, to be humble about how they 
specify their models. So if it's value, you've got a variety of different specifications for value, a variety of different ways of constructing portfolios. So you're sufficiently diversified across all the major dimensions of risk. Then you're in a situation where your diversified model will always be underperforming some random single specification of a strategy that is branded the same way. You've got an ensemble value strategy. It's doing what it does, which is a sort of relatively smooth line. In any given year, you're going to have some random hyper-specified value product or value index that is just going to kick ass that year. And your diversified approach is going to look weak. And then there's going to be some group that are going to underperform the diversified approach. But investors who don't understand that outperformance of the highly specified approach is due to random noise and that over the long term, the diversified approach is likely to deliver better performance out of sample will be tricked. We certainly see that all the time. And I don't know how you manage that or avoid that type of risk and just sort of perception risk with clients too. It's really hard. One of the ways I found to be, I guess, maybe less tempted to kind of be hot money, so to speak, is to really understand the the portfolio construction and begin to do some attribution analysis, digging into, but why? And you dig in through that first layer to understand, okay, perhaps it was a factor definition. Oh, okay. That helps explain some of the outperformance. Okay. But then why? And then you kind of keep asking that question and digging in all the way down to trading decisions of, oh, okay, it's because this reconstituted this date and, okay, well, let's play around with it and let's create an alternative reality. What happens if it was rebalanced this date? You kind of begin to try to back out all of the decisions along the way and perhaps kind of pseudo create the ensemble for them and then take a look at the kind of pseudo ensemble to say, is this still what I want? Is it extracting the premium I expected to extract? and ignoring some of the decisions that have a really big influence in returns over the short term to say, okay, let's just pretend they didn't make that particular decision and really look at higher level decisions. It's tough. It's an art, I think. Even though you're doing it, the live actual results, you're always kind of weighing something, the devil that sits on your shoulder, but it's kind of like, okay, but here's what they actually did. Don't pay attention to the kind of the theoretical stuff. You need to pay attention to hard data. And it's really, really hard to weigh and balance those two to understand what you own and have the conviction to continue to own it, that it's going to extract the premium you expect it to extract. Yeah. So, I mean, the last two or three years, I think, is revealing in terms of how we should think about diversification in the alt premium space. Don't you think? I mean, While the correlations, if you look at them on a daily basis or even on a monthly basis, are lower, just sort of a visual inspection of these strategies, you can't help but come away feeling like they are more related than we may have originally thought from some of the historical data. Yes. I'm going to butcher it since I'm not deeply involved in physics, but is it the Schrodinger's paradox that things exist and don't exist all at the same time? And the existence of something helps reveal its state that the more people are aware of this, I think begins to alter the reality a little bit going forward. Kind of gets down to understanding why you earn a premium in the first place, that you need to really be focusing on something that 
there's either an economic reason for the premium or a behavioral reason for the premium to exist. But I even think the behavioral can be on a bit of shaky ground, I think, because over time, investor behavior has largely gotten better. I think indexing is going to help reduce at least some of the inter-asset premium, start looking at cross-sectional value and momentum and quality. Some of those, I think, are just going to be tougher premiums to earn over time because indexing, I think, is going to remove a lot of the in-aggregate behavioral mistakes for investors going forward. Personally, I think I've come to appreciate some of the more traditional premium instead of just kind of looking outside of value and momentum, some of the premium like merger arbitrage premium and convertible arbitrage premium and lots of other alternative premium, I think fit in portfolios and help defray, I guess, some of decline in value momentum specifically over time. It's easy to look at back tests and assume history will continue. It's very hard to understand what one should expect realistically going forward with the evolution of market participants. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you take, I think, a novel approach in how you allocate. You actually trend follow to a certain extent your managers, right? Even some of the alt premium managers in the past. Yes. Interestingly enough, trend shows up in lots of places, even including the alternative premium themselves. To a certain extent, this may get a bit wonky and this is a bit of a working hypothesis, so interested in any feedback or thoughts you might have. I think one of the reasons trend following is so interesting is if you have a non-normal distribution or a distribution that tends to have some fairly fat tails and volatility is positively correlated, by trend following, you are in essence beginning to chop off the left tail. So if to the extent value kind of follows that kind of probability or return distribution and momentum certainly does... You can, in essence, use trend following to take advantage of that return distribution a little bit and kind of remove some of the left tail. And as you do that, you kind of force the whole return distribution a bit to the right and pick up some returns simply because the negative compounding out of the left tail isn't as bad. So I think most alternative premium are that way. And I think March is a great example why. I think any strategy that tends to be liquid in liquidity crises will suffer. It doesn't matter what the correlation matrix might show in events like March where it's like, just give me cash and I don't care, or you have to deal with deleveraging cycles. Things get very, very correlated, even if they might be market neutral. And one can take advantage of that in alternative premia, just like traditional risk premia, like the equity risk premia or the term premia. So those are somewhat minor bets in portfolios. And probably the best way that those are implemented might be in rebalancing decisions themselves. But yeah, I think there's something exploitable there, not to give too much away. Yeah, I mean, we've researched some of that internally and have migrated much more towards conditional relationships between factors at an individual market level. So our thinking has evolved pretty substantially on that. But I will say that having some very high level or fairly basic analysis of how trend applies to trading factor portfolios. I'm keen to see your research on it. I haven't really seen a lot of success with it, but I certainly take your word for it that there's something there. I want to shift gears a little bit because I know actually while you are a real student of the markets and student of 
empirical finance in particular, I think your real passion is on the planning side. I mean, we've had lots of conversations about planning. We sort of co-developed a couple of tools and bandied around different ways of thinking about the problem. But I'd love to hear how you're thinking on retirement planning and retirement modeling has evolved through time. I started with sort of Moshe Walewski and the inverse gamma distribution and the sort of parametric models and, and migrated fairly quickly to bootstrap models. But there's still lots of challenges and problems fundamentally with those. Where did you start and has your thinking evolved through time there? I think like most people, perhaps slightly embarrassed about where one begins when you evolve over time, starts really with almost more calculator, net present value kind of computations that assume that there's a linear relationship. And then you begin to get into perhaps dangerously naive rules of thumb, like the 4% withdrawal rule. And then you begin to see all of the assumptions that go into a rule of thumb like that. And your eyes open up a little bit to, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm making this implicit assumption about levels of returns or levels of risk or even states of the market. You begin to then kind of build your own models and try to control more of the assumptions. So that way you feel like either the assumptions that you're making are more plausible and you have a little more control over what happens in the simulation itself. And then there are some interesting research implications for perhaps where we might go in the future. I guess I'm thinking more generally with the engine itself that drives a financial plan, whether it be a Monte Carlo simulation. Some interesting areas in the future are perhaps modeling real market behavior inside of the Monte Carlo engine itself with mean reversion and rates of return, which I don't know, that may get some people hair on their neck standing up a little bit. But I think it exists in the sense of, if you consider a bond as an example, you buy it at a 6% rate a yield of maturity. Whatever the length of the bond, when it matures, you get 6%. Let's say you buy it day one at 6% and price declines day two, so that its yield to maturity now is 7%, not 6 If you were to run the Monte Carlo simulation day one using a 6% return, it's probably a pretty good model of what you can likely experience. But day two, you now have a bond with a yield of maturity of 7%. Why should the Monte Carlo simulation just, again, assume a 6% rate of return when the bond's yielding seven? So you need to update that capital market assumption in the model to say, well, no, it's really a 7% return and some fluctuations around that, whatever that might be. You can do that, I think, pretty safely with bonds. Monte Carlo doesn't really do that currently. You could probably do something similar with equity markets. And suddenly what you have now is a Monte Carlo simulation with kind of dynamic capital asset pricing assumptions. So that's kind of, I think, where my interest lies now is in having the simulation itself be more dynamic. And you don't tell it what return assumptions to use, like use 8% for equities or what have you, but you code in your belief perhaps of the asset pricing theory, what drives these returns, and then you allow the software to update those return assumptions over time and kind of dynamically. So you start with the set of initial conditions. Exactly. And then you have functions that are evolutionary functions and will adjust the capital market expectations at each step, given assumptions about market momentum or market long-term mean reversion. And as you say with bonds, that is fairly straightforward. We've got really good models that explain kind of 
95 to 98 percent of the variance of forward bond returns over a period equal to twice the duration. Exactly. And with equities, I guess you'd have to tease out what those relationships may look like and be fairly humble with your ability to specify what some of those parameters are. Exactly. You could do this, I think, in a spectrum of potential asset pricing theories. Perhaps you believe in a somewhat fixed risk premium. So now you're just updating the risk-free rate over time, just as one example, to perhaps having on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you believe in some mean variance or I guess kind of something like a CAPE ratio might drive the return expectation over time. So you model a CAPE ratio over time and you believe that it reverts back to some mean or median multiple over some time horizon. And you're kind of baking lots of assumptions into that one. But you could use kind of the anywhere along the spectrum of what fits with your assumption of what drives asset class returns. And what emerges from that is an ensemble of estimates. Then you can weight the different models and what have you and hopefully get to a closer estimate of reality than what you get with the naive model. Exactly. And I think this might be a distinction without a difference. When you run just traditional Monte Carlo, what you get is the median case and probably things within one standard deviation of the median begin to make sense conceptually. But what happens is the tails of a traditional Monte Carlo and a financial plan are almost ludicrously good and ludicrously bad. And it's because that expectation doesn't get updated over time. So you get a fantastic return year one. It doesn't tamp down all of the return expectations going forward. It just kind of says, great, year one was fantastic. And then it compounds that over time. So that initial good luck gets compounded with more and more good luck. And you just end up with some almost kind of unusable tail scenarios. It doesn't really paint an accurate picture of what the tails look like. Anything within one standard deviation kind of makes sense. But if you're looking at it from a risk mitigation standpoint, for example, how much equity risk can somebody actually take in their portfolio? And one of the things is you're starting to look at failure rates and failure magnitudes and how bad can things get? Well, when you're compounding bad cases or bad luck over time, it's going to give you a far more conservative answer than you're likely to face in reality if there's some kind of mean reversion in portfolio returns, either driven through fundamentals like in bonds or perhaps just mean reversion in market multiples. So there are some practical cases. Yeah, no, for sure. How do you deal with the potential optimistic bias that is injected in a lot of these models by virtue of using U.S. data, primarily because U.S. data has one of the longest histories. Do you have good data for some of the other markets using global financial data back to, God, the 1200s and stuff in some cases? (laughs) But in terms of the data that most investors have access to and that probably is most meaningful to contemporary modeling, how do you overcome that? Do you just sort of discount the results of the U.S. case? I mean, if we sort of say the ex-U.S. equity risk premium is on the order of 4% a year, the U.S. is on the order of 6% a year, you just kind of come in halfway or do you adjust things at all? I'll start with, we do adjust for that. And I don't necessarily mean to think that the way we do it might be the right way, but we even try to use a bit of an ensemble method for something like that. The first one is, it may have been Auntie 
who kind of decomposed U.S. historical returns and kind of tried to isolate how much of the return was kind of unexpectedly good by decomposing the returns into their sources over time. And I think it was something on the order of magnitude of about 1% a year. I think it was a little less, but that's kind of generally the magnitude. So you can use that to kind of strip away U.S. historical returns to say, kind of put it on par with other markets. The next way is probably a bit first principled of the U.S. got lucky. What really should an equity risk premium be? And then we treat all equity risk premia as that number. If it's equity risk premia, that's our expectation going forward. And I think we use somewhere around 5% or so over cash for the equity risk premium there. The next piece is kind of using a theoretical way to arrive at the risk premium. Take dividends plus real growth plus inflation. You could use net buybacks plus dividends. Whatever your method there, I also think use earnings with a 50% constant payout. And that'll kind of give you a similar answer. And kind of the final way is to take uh, medium to long-term capital market assumptions from major financial institutions, JP Morgan, BlackRock, AQR, research affiliates, and take a look at those. And you begin to kind of adjust a little bit for really long-term historical numbers and probably a little bit of current valuation adjusted expectations going forward. And then you pretty much put a lot of noise around that for the equity risk premia. You could be a little more precise with term premia. And then you run it through the Monte Carlo and you know that adds some noise too. And now you're really figuring out how robust somebody's financial plan might be in determining, hey, what's a safe spending rate from this portfolio? And even that is customized for every individual. Time horizon matters a lot. Their savings rate when they're not yet retired matters a lot. You can take into account non-portfolio capital, things like social security payments for a U.S. citizen, how much they have in real estate and what's the correlation between the tenants and their real estate and the overall market. And you begin to build in a lot of this, which is, I think, why somebody needs should have a financial plan and not just rely on kind of a rule of thumb from a portfolio because that's just looking at a portfolio in isolation. It's looking at only U.S. data. It's only going back to 1926. Just as an example, it's assuming that the cash rate is, I think, somewhere around 3.1% or 3.5% or whatever the U.S. historical cash rate is. So even if you were assuming constant risk premium, you need to shave those returns down by basically 3.1% to 3.5% to adjust for current yields. So there's a lot of work to kind of prepare the ingredients, so to speak, of a financial plan, even before you do any cooking. Yeah. And I know that your team focuses quite a bit on tax management and asset location. And we, when we last chatted, I think you guys were working on some kind of skunk works project where you were using genetic programming to help inform the optimal asset location in the context of all the other portfolio moving parts? Have you made any progress with that? A little bit, although I think over time we realized that we were bringing a howitzer to a knife fight. So I think we've turned down the brain power and actually it's built in Excel and it uses the gradient descent algorithm to kind of solve for that. I hoping to maybe have something up shortly. I've been kind of working on it intermittently. Kind of some interesting takeaways here again, I'm not sure how familiar you are with kind of asset location rules of thumb. But if you think conceptually, there are kind of three different account taxation types. You have a tax-free account, 
where that might be like a Roth IRA uh, or a health savings account in the United States. You have a tax deferred, which like a 401k, traditional IRA, annuity, where you don't pay tax on the income inside of the account. But what you pay tax on is when you take a withdrawal, the amount of the withdrawal is considered income, ordinary income. And finally, you have a, a taxable account. Each year you pay tax on the income generated in that account when it's recognized. So dividends when they're paid, capital gains when you sell them. So that creates a bit of a tax drag. Well, kind of traditional rule of thumb is you put bonds inside of the tax deferred account. You try to put as much stock in a tax-free account as you can and kind of whatever stock is left over in a taxable account. That's kind of the general rule of thumb. And like all rules of thumb, there's a reason for it. It's probably not a bad starting place. But when you begin to incorporate actual current data, prices, return assumptions, especially now, a lot of the logic tends to get flipped on its head. Again, this is customized, so you need your own personalized tax rates, time horizon that go into this, but it's probably a little stale, but I'll give you an example. Municipal bonds in the United States have uh, about a 3% yield and they're tax-free. And if you're really lucky, you can get a state municipal income bond fund that fits your state of residency, in which case you don't even pay state tax on the income. You compare that with like a 10-year treasury yield of, I don't know what it was yesterday, 0.66% or something like that. And you even take out the taxes on that and you're talking about a 0.4% after-tax rate of return. Well, you could earn a 3% tax-free rate of return by owning municipal bonds. And so it literally flips a lot of the equation on its head on how you want to do this. Some really rough estimates are for an all equity portfolio, you might be able to add something to the order of 0.25 to 0.4% in after-tax return through optimizing what account owns what. And again, that's dependent on time horizon and your own tax rate and the relative amounts you have in all the different account types, but kind of give you an, a general idea. And then if you have some bonds in your portfolio, kind of a general idea now, for somebody with a half stock, half bond allocation is probably on the order of 0.6 to 0.8% of after-tax return improvement from... Well, wow, that's gargantuan. Yeah. And it's simply due to... You define your target asset allocation. That pickup is just from determining what piece goes in which account. It's meaningful amount of money from doing it correctly at current rates. So it's not immaterial. And some of this really, you have to have a very good understanding of what kind of income is going to be generated from all these different kinds of investments? What's the taxation type? Do I get to defer it at all? Is the deferral voluntary? Or as an example, with a mutual fund, they may pay a capital gain distribution, and that's kind of an involuntary recognition of gain. So there are still lots of ways to slip up, but one can go a long way towards boosting after-tax return. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Shifting gears again, you had a really interesting tweet. I think it was last week. Could have been earlier this week. Time seems to be melding together. <laughs> yeah, March was a pretty long year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or decade. But you tweeted about risk management and tail hedging. And you made a really interesting statement about whether it makes sense or the degree to which it makes sense to try and hedge against these very short-term spikes down versus trying to hedge against the longer term risk of not achieving your required return objectives, for example. And I think that's a really interesting 
thing to dwell on for a minute. Do you want to expand on that for us? Sure. Well, hopefully provide a lot more nuance, the, the lack of nuance sometimes that Twitter provides. I think it comes down to conceptually risk for every investor is different. And I think one really needs to understand the, the nature of what risk is to each person. I'll kind of take perhaps two opposite ends of the spectrum. In an institution or an endowment, an individual funding their own retirement. And ironically, they might be more similar perhaps than I'm going to portray them in their objectives. But for most individual investors, they're going to be owning liquid products, liquid investments. They want to turn it all to cash. They can do it tomorrow. They can do it today. It's not hard to turn the portfolio into cash. They also have a very long time horizon. They don't have any boards they're reporting to. They don't have an investment committee. They're kind of making their own decisions. Risk for them, as you actually model it out in a financial plan, isn't a really quick, sharp decline in prices. And especially so if we kind of touch on something kind of two conversations ago about mean reverting return assumptions, that oftentimes quick declines increase expected returns, and perhaps that isn't really a risk for an individual. So something like what happened in March, although it's terrifying to experience, that in and of itself isn't a real risk. The risk for an individual is 10 years, especially 10 years as soon as they start retirement, of enduring zero portfolio growth and negative real portfolio growth. That's what tends to kill retirement plans, is not the sharp declines, the grinding out of just going nowhere. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. You have an institution. They have liquidity needs. They're required to spend. They have portfolios that have private investments that can't be turned to cash immediately. You perhaps have funds that are being added to the endowment over time, and those might be correlated with equity markets. You have spending that might be negatively correlated to equity markets. So as equity markets decline, spending needs might go up. In a situation like that, a sharp decline might literally be a very real risk for that portfolio. So as you begin to understand kind of the nature of risk, I think, you then look at tail risk very differently, that an individual can take on short-term tail risk. Now, obviously, the risk is you get a big decline and then kind of a flat line for a while, or even a very gradual recovery, in which case they've gone nowhere for 10 years. It's not in and of itself the sharp decline. It's the long period of no returns. An institution might have liquidity needs. And they experience a sharp decline, their funding may go down, their spending needs might go up, they might violate policy constraints on how much private investments they have, their liquidity then is dynamic. Something to hedge that risk, I think, makes sense there. And not to say anything's right or wrong, but I think an individual trying to hedge very short-term declines perhaps is, is kind of a tail hedge mismatch, perhaps. If they were interested in hedging tails, their tail risk looks different and should be hedged differently as well. And I think it's a lot easier to hedge that risk with diversification than it, perhaps it might be for an institution who might need something more akin to a hard hedge on that risk. I think you, Rodrigo, Mike, and Jason talked about that quite a bit in earlier podcasts. And I think you guys hit the nail on the head of what is risk? It's an ever-evolving, ever-changing, personalized demon that needs to be dealt with. Yeah. And like you say, for many investors, if not for all investors, the first line of defense is better diversification. So in that context, there's been a lot of agitation about the fact that CalPERS is going to take on a little bit of extra leverage. 
in their portfolio to try and hit their required return target. How do you think about that? I guess it, it depends pretty substantially on how they're going, what they're going to use that leverage for. I mean, the objective is we've recognized we've got too high a concentration of risk, let's say in equity risk. And in order for us to diversify into truly orthogonal sources of return, that's going to lower the expected return of the portfolio at the same level of, or at that current level of volatility, because those assets have high sharps maybe and are uncorrelated, but are also have low volatility. And so in order to create better balance in the portfolio and achieve our return objectives, we need to, to layer on some leverage. That's a different conversation than I guess we're going to maintain our current portfolio posture and just lever it up. What was your reaction to that? How do you think that applies to other investors? It's interesting. I guess my first reaction was kind of amusement at the reaction it was generating because it's so nuanced in what exactly are they doing that until you know that, your reaction should be kind of indifference, I think. We could go to one extreme and let's say that they can issue debt very cheaply and perhaps buy back other California higher yielding municipal bonds. But the same term, I mean the length of the bond, not necessarily the debenture itself, but there's no duration mismatch or anything like that. And it's kind of like a direct arbitrage of the California municipal income market. Something like that, you look at it, it's like, okay, well, lever it the heck up because there's not a whole lot of real risk there because they're doing something much more similar to, in essence, the asset that they're buying is very similar to the debt that they're issuing and there's basis risk, but it's very minimal risk. I think what they're doing, well, I don't know what they're doing with the assets, but let's pretend. Let's say that they're, to your point, adding assets that reduce risk and they're adding leverage. You know, that is literally the definition of some of the portfolio math on Markowitz's. You own the portfolio with the highest risk adjusted return and simply lever it or de-risk it to you hit your return target or your risk target, whichever way you're wanting to solve. Also, the way pensions work with their liabilities being a little more fixed income-like, I think you need to take into account their funding ratios and how they're managing that. There's just a lot that goes into it, and it's really hard to think it's a good idea or a bad idea kind of on its face. Well, on its face, it's silly because they obviously already have an enormous amount of leverage on the books that no one's ever batted an eye about. Every private equity or infrastructure deal that they're invested in has a massive amount of leverage to it. There is leverage in the equity book. The S&P is levered over two to one. So, I mean, everyone freaks out and gnashes teeth about, and the amount that they're proposing is actually relatively small as a proportion of the total size of their book. I think they're talking about 20% excess leverage ratio. So it's minuscule, but it seems to have attracted an enormous amount of negative discourse. I always find it fascinating. One can get in trouble is when you start to mix two of these three. Leverage, volatility and illiquidity. And when it's in the same investment, anyone on its face by itself isn't a problem. I think when you start to mix more than one of those together in the same investment, that begins to be a real issue. If the debt's termed and it's non-callable and they match it against an asset that has a similar kind of investment horizon, that fits with a lot of theory. I think maybe Citadel at one point was maybe one of the only hedge funds to get a credit rating and issued term bonds. And I think they were pretty 
prescient with doing that. That makes a lot of sense. It's when you go borrow money and you think everything's fine and then you get blown out of a position because everybody else had the same trade on and you're getting margin calls or that can be dangerous. So even levering, but having the leverage termed so it, it's non-callable leverage can go a long way to mitigating a lot of risk because you can ride out all of the bumpiness along the way. So speaking of leverage and speaking of shocks and risk, how has 2020 shaken how you think about diversification, how you think about risk management in general? Have any of your views shifted at all? Yes and no. I guess I'll perhaps share some things that I find a little frustrating or surprising about 2020 from the diversification front. March of 2020 was one that was so bifurcated in reaction to things that diversifying your diversifiers hurt in the sense that it was pretty much U.S. treasuries and U.S. government agency mortgages and then everything else. And even there were a couple of days in there, I think you and I were corresponding on Twitter when I think there was an ETF, there was a 20-year treasury ETF that was trading at like an 8% discount to NAV intraday that things just got nuts to the level of personally, that felt more disconnected than some days of September and October in 2008. Stuff that I just thought never would happen was happening. So to some extent, you think you can understand risk, but every event is unique and different and it's going to surprise you. The things that weren't necessarily surprising, when you take a look at a lot of crises, especially uh, short-term crises, they tend to be very deflation focused and fixed income tends to do very well during those kinds of crises because inflation comes down and the real return on bonds continue to look better and better. And so yields fall to kind of keep a regular real return. So that was helpful. Personally, I think to assume that's always going to be the case is perhaps a bit dangerous. To the extent we start to get any inflation shocks, I think a lot of people who either aren't students of history or haven't lived through it are going to be a little surprised when stocks and bonds begin to act positively correlated during sell-offs. And that hasn't been an issue lately. And Returns in portfolios have been mildly hurt by having inflation protection over the last 20 years, 20 plus years. Just because risk hasn't come to fruition doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a risk there. Yeah. How are you diversifying in a way to allow your investments to be resilient to an inflationary regime? Thankfully, you can do that somewhat expensively in the fixed income market now, owning treasury inflation protected securities. You can go back and forth on, well, to the extent that they're using government published inflation, perhaps that understates actual inflation and your purchasing power could be eroded even in the event of that. But that's certainly one area. Second is you can find sometimes assets that have very high sensitivity to unexpected inflation shocks. So I'll use an example, not to say that we use it, but gold historically looks like it has zero correlation to inflation, which say, largely an empirical fact historically. But when you begin to decompose that into expected inflation or inflation that's already should be priced in and unexpected inflation, it has actually kind of a mild negative sensitivity to changes in expected inflation, but a six times beta on unexpected inflation. So you can begin to take a look at assets that do well towards unexpected inflation shocks because it's unexpected inflation that we should care about, not priced in inflation. 
So I think that would be one thing to keep an eye on is just what's expected and what's expected should be discounted. You want to, in essence, try to look for free call options on unexpected inflation. So how are you guys actually, so you're not invested in gold. So how are you implementing diversification in that context? So some of it is through trend following exposure itself that we look at trend following a little bit like to the extent that we get any kind of sustained regime in something, whether it be deflation, inflation, trend following should, depending on the speed that you're using, kind of getting back to some of the craftsmanship, pick up on the change in the regime and begin to own assets that are doing well in that particular regime. So to the extent that we get sustained inflationary pressures, my expectation would be that it would probably go long lots of different commodities, short interest rates, and probably long and short different currency pairs that would fit with that kind of regime. And then on the fixed income side, the inflation protected securities can go a long way to kind of helping perhaps not completely mitigate, but mute some of the noise or harm that unexpected inflation shocks could cause a portfolio. It is a challenge because as we try to demonstrate the empirical efficacy of our portfolios, any attempt to diversify into sleeves that protect against inflation have been, have had negative carry over the past 30 years. You run into this situation where your back test looks substantially worse while fundamentally you understand that you need to have this beta to in unexpected inflation risk. And so you may create the illusion of having a strategy that is resilient to many different market regimes. But when you examine the fact that a high unexpected inflation regime has only occurred about 10 or 12% of the time over the last 30 or 40 years, then you've got to dilute the value somewhat of the empirical data in acknowledgement of that and seek other ways to evaluate the expected efficacy of your models going forward. Exactly. I'm going to touch, interesting enough, on two prior conversations we've had. One that gets to the kind of understanding why something should work in theory and kind of the first principles to it, like we were talking about on the alternative premia versus what's actually happened and kind of that pull you get, but it hasn't worked recently. And then you can almost turn to your other side and kind of say, but I really need it in portfolios because I understand intellectually why it needs to be there. And gets to also, I think, another interesting point on what is risk and, and what is tail risk. For a pension fund who has nominal obligations and will be making nominal payments to its pensioners, Inflation isn't necessarily a risk. Be picked up in your liability over time as perhaps wages rise faster and you're going to have some different actuarial assumptions. But in and of itself, the inflation isn't a risk. You take a look at an individual who's funding their retirement from a portfolio. I think one of the biggest risks to that is inflation. And what's interesting is when you actually take a look at the data, when you go back from 1926 through whatever, the plan that fails at like the 4.05% portfolio withdrawal rate is not 1929. It's not 1937. It's actually 1964. And it's because- The person who retires in 1964, exactly. Yes, exactly. The one who has to deal with the rampant inflation during the first 10 to 15 years of their portfolio. 
their plan is ruined. And it's not necessarily because of the gross returns over their lifetime, because the gross returns are actually pretty good. They could have been Hans Gruber and going to the beach earning 20%. The reality is it's the real rate of return that they earned that was just abysmal and wrecked the retirement plan. So I think that perhaps might be a very unappreciated or underappreciated risk to retirees is you have to understand that inflation poses a very real risk. And it's not necessarily inflation generally. It could be a very personalized rate of inflation. You own your home and it's not leveraged. You don't have to worry about house price inflation in the sense of that cost is fixed. So perhaps your rate of inflation that you need to be worried about is more energy related. And perhaps it's exposure to oils and petroleum that gets used in everyday products. Healthcare inflation. Exactly. As a father to five young kids, tuition inflation is a very real thing. So it's not necessarily inflation per se, but it's your personal definition of inflation. But what's so shocking is how few portfolios are positioned to thrive or even really survive a prolonged inflationary episode. I mean, your typical 60-40 portfolio clearly is going to have a very difficult time. You're probably going to have negative real returns for that inflationary period. And the assets that you need in that period are the ones that have, for the most part, done the worst over the last 10 years. So how do you sell that kind of diversification? How do you make it real emotionally? How do you connect with clients emotionally on the need for those types of exposures when there's the real risk that they end up just negative attribution line item in their portfolio statements for years to come? Well, I'll start off with it's tough and I'm not sure I have a real good solution. I think that one of the easiest things is to be constantly working on education that your portfolio is not your plan. Your plan is your plan and your portfolio is there simply to implement your plan. So if let's say you have an investment who is a negative attribution on a portfolio analysis, but it ensures a risk in their plan or even allows them to execute your plan more quickly, whatever that might be. And I'm kind of making this up. I'm not sure that there's an asset that does this, but let's just say you focus on not necessarily the portfolio results, although those are important, but it's the progress that they're making towards their plan. Your success rate has moved from a model to 85% to an 87%. This is working. That risk that we talked about of, hey, you plan on buying a boat at age 70, and we've been putting this in here, and there's a lot of petroleum costs going into a boat. I don't know. I'm just kind of making it up. But that over allocation to oil stocks that we've had in your portfolio to hedge that risk, well, the good news, bad news is that's done poorly, but you can now buy your boat more cheaply. And really trying to directly tie the asset and the liability together a lot like a pension fund does, that it's there to fund spending or a liability. You can call it a goal or whatever, but those two need to be tied. So I think that goes a long way, but there's always going to be re-education necessary because inevitably it's, why do I own this again? It's the, yes, we're trying to defease a liability here, and here's why. But I think tying it back to the bigger picture can help cure a lot of ills on, I don't know what the term might be, but uh, line item isolation in an investment portfolio or anything else where somebody might kind of create a very different benchmark than what their actual benchmark is, both for their portfolio and their plan. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a useful construct to try and position all of the 
investments in the portfolio as a hedge against something. Your equities are a hedge against not achieving your required return. Your bonds are a hedge against equities failing spectacularly in their primary role. The commodities are in there because the two primary things that you're leaning on fundamentally are designed to not work in certain economic environments that we just happen to haven't really seen in the last 20 or 30 years, but nevertheless, we know can manifest. And then connecting those investments to very real future goals is, I think, a way to make it to internet emotionally connect to the need for these items, even as they continue to deliver pain on a line item basis year in, year out. It's a good insight. Interestingly enough, if you take a look at funding and retirement, Really, the risk-free rate, so to speak, is just a whole series of zero coupon or a ladder of tips, treasury inflation protected securities that match all of the expected spending over some actuarial time horizon. And then what you begin to do, I think, in reality is say, okay, well, maybe instead of owning a 30-year tip, I actually want to own some equities there. You can kind of begin to work backwards from that portfolio too. Not to say that we do this or anybody else does this, but the framing is interesting when you go from a benchmark of that instead of starting from a benchmark of market cap weighted global stocks and global bonds, because it's kind of like, well, what you're really saying when you own the market cap weighted stock and bond portfolio is my goal is equal to the portfolio aggregate weighted goal of the market participants, but that's not my goal. So I now need to go in and actually figure out what is my goal and change the portfolio to kind of match that. I think I've probably badly butchered my meaning behind that. I pick it up while you're laying down. Really, the idea is if you really want to hedge, perfectly hedge, or almost perfectly hedge your retirement liabilities, you can do that with a ladder of tips where the first tip matures the first year you plan to retire and then the next. So you can absolutely fully hedge that if you like. Here is how much you need to save if you would like to fully, perfectly hedge this portfolio with virtually no path risk. And then when people see the true cost of that in terms of the amount that they need to save, then that helps to frame the value of the shorter term risks that they need to embrace by investing in things like equities and these alt-risk premium products and all of the other factors in the portfolio that deliver risk premia above the expected return on this long-term inflation protected asset. Exactly. And in essence, what one's doing is kind of putting some statistical confidence intervals around being able to meet those cash flow needs instead of literally defeasing those cash flow needs. Right, right. With the least onerous imposition on your lifestyle during your working years. Exactly. It's interesting when you change the framing, sometimes how the perception of that changes because I think a lot of people start with the 60-40 and probably more specifically the US 60-40 portfolio was kind of the starting benchmark and then make changes from there. I think really the probably the better way to view it is that kind of risk-free ladder of tips and then making modifications from there to either get to a savings rate that's palatable or something along those lines. It's just kind of the difference between having a benchmark that is investment focused versus one that is plan focused. Yep, absolutely. Very good insight. All right. Well, we're uh, about 10 minutes past an hour here and we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else you wanted to make sure we chatted about or should we save the rest for next time? I guess the rest for next time. Got everything. Hopefully 
insightful or useful. That was terrific. I really appreciate you making time for this. And I really hope we can get back to our usual conversations, especially at the March for the Fallen. That's such a great event. And it doesn't look like it's going to go off in the same way this year, but maybe they'll find some kind of creative workaround so we can all still have a, a chance to get together virtually and make an event and connect the way that we have historically, because it's such a great time. You bet. Although it'd be a little different when it's suffering individually instead of collectively. Very true. We'll have to find a way to connect the suffering. Yeah. <laughs> Keep us all going. Yeah. Anyways, thanks again, Andrew. Really appreciate it. And what's your Twitter handle in case people want to follow you? It's at M-I-L-L-E-R-A-K-42. All right. There you go. Thanks again. And I'm sure we'll be chatting soon. Sounds good. Take care, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.